Welcome to the podcast from Church of the Nazarene. Please subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. And you can also search for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. We also invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 on our YouTube channel or Facebook Live. You can also join us in person at 9 or 1030 for our English services or 1145 for our Spanish service. We also invite you to join Celebrate Recovery every Monday night at 630. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to begin this morning and I want to talk to you about um, something I think is fun. I want to I want to talk to you about uh, toys. So <laughs> I've got I've got kids at home. I talk about them a lot, but toys, you know. And you're maybe don't have kids at home, or you're just a big kid. But we all know the toys, right? There's all kinds of toys that might remind you of your childhood. They might remind you of things in your life now. I brought a bunch of different things up here. Doodle Pro, you know, things that you can write and draw on. The fun toys to give but not to receive, right? So you like to give other people's kids the toys that make lots of noise and light up, but you don't really want that. So that's just a tip there. If there's a friend that you want to kind of pick on a little bit. Uh, Play-Doh, you know, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. And one of my favorites I brought today, uh, one of my favorites, it was such a favorite. I think sometime as a teenager, my parents got me another one is this guy right here, right? The potato head. Look at that smile. Man, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, what about you? So, so every decade has their toys, right? And I'm not going to date you. I'm not going to tell you how old you are. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, but, but every decade has their toys. So I was just doing some research and I was looking back. Oh, my tractor almost fell. What about the 1960s? Now, I don't expect any cheers of that because, you know, those of you in the room that maybe you want to hide a little bit and pretend, but, but come on, come on. Uh, the light bright. Am I right? Am I right? Now, I'm a kid of the 80s and that thing came back several times, but there was the light bright. There was the Hot Wheels, like the original Hot Wheels, G.I. Joe, the original. Anybody, anybody want to give a shout out to some 1960 toy? No, no, I didn't think so. Okay, maybe, maybe a few brave souls. Yeah, I see you. Uh, what about 1970s? How about this thing, the Atari, right? There's a few of you, right? You have the courage to admit. Uh, I was looking at Star Wars action figures became kind of big during this time, or literally a thing called a pet rock. I mean, literally, they sold it in stores. Some of you are nodding, like, you bought that. You're a little ashamed, but you did. All right, what about the 80s? I'm a kid of the 80s, so Cabbage Patch Dolls, right? Yep, yep. Uh, What about Teddy Ruxpin? Anybody remember that guy? I had him, right? He'd, like, light up and sing songs or whatever. My Little Ponies, Transformers, those kind of things from the 80s. All right, 90s, we're getting a little closer today. How about this thing? Tickle Me Elmo. Some of y'all waited in line for one of these crazy things, man. You paid way too much for shipping. Did we ship in the 1990s? I don't even remember that far back. The Super Soaker. It was not just a water gun. It was a Super Soaker. Uh, Beanie Babies. Remember those things? Yep, yep. Furby. Oh, those were creepy, but those were... 1990. I'm, some of y'all, some of y'all remember. All right, 2000s. This is not that long ago. The iPod Touch. The iPod Touch, right? Beyblades, Zuzu Pets. I had all of this stuff in my home, right? Xbox 360, Nintendo Wii, you know, so I've got kids. I remember all of these. And then 2010s, I, I struggled with this one, but I, this is personal for me. So these wretched little things, right, called LOL Surprise. Okay, so, so my daughter just turned five, and she had a friend from school that gave her this giant box. And on the box, it says 55 plus surprises. And I'm here to tell you, when I'm stepping on all 55 of them, 
left around my house, I am not thinking LOL. That's not what I'm thinking at that moment. I'm thinking something very different. But we have our toys, right? But check this out. This is really interesting. Researchers have suggested something that I find really fascinating. I find fascinating as a parent and just as a person. Uh, Giving your kids less toys, this is what researchers say. Giving your kids less toys will actually make them happier. Uh, This was a study by the University of Toledo, and it it examined a group of toddlers. And and the toddlers, there's one group of toddlers was given four toys, and one group of toddlers was given 16 toys, so four times as many. And, And they just, they watched them play. And they observed, and, and they noticed what happened. And, and, and the results were pretty astounding, pretty revealing. The toddlers with more toys actually spent way less time playing, as much as half, as little as half the time playing, even though they had so many more toys. Listen to what some of the researchers say. One researcher observed, an abundance of toys creates a distraction. Another one said, a child will rarely learn to fully appreciate the toy in front of them with countless options still remaining on the shelf behind them. Think about that, right? A child will rarely fully appreciate the toy in front of them with countless options behind them. It's not that toys are bad. Please, please, kids, don't chase me down after the service, right? I don't, some of the parents are like, man, we wish we heard this message before Christmas, Right? That's, that's not the message. The message is not that toys are bad, but it's, it's, the message is the abundance of toys can actually be, be destructive. But the truth is we're not just talking about kids and their toys, right? We, we all have our toys. You know what I'm talking about, the car in the driveway that you wash and you wax way more than you need to. It's not dirty, but you're still, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the coolest phone because the one two versions ago just isn't quite as good as the newest. Or, or the, the bigger TV screen. Your last one was pretty big, but this one's bigger and it's clearer. You know what I'm talking about. The clothes and clothes and more clothes. The shoes and shoes and more shoes. We, we get older, right? But we still have our toys, don't we? We do. We have toys. And look, there's nothing wrong with toys. There's nothing wrong with our toys except when we believe that more and more will make us happy. We believe that the more toys we have, the more stuff we have, the happier we, we will be. And the truth is, that's, that's a lie. It's a lie. And it's a lie that God's word is going to help us reveal today. So I'm going to invite you to turn today to James chapter 5. We have made it, uh, started back in the fall. We've made it through to chapter 5 of James. Can you believe it? So I'm going to invite you to turn there, James 5 verse 1, and I'm going to invite you as we've done almost each and every week to stand as we read God's word today. Uh, We just like to change our posture sometimes as we read God's word. And so if you're able, if you're not, that's fine, but if you're able, would you just stand as we dive into the first six verses of James chapter 5? I've got it on the screen. Uh, We also have it in the YouVersion Bible app. So if you're a YouVersion Bible user, you can find our event set up there. Uh, This is the word of the Lord for us today. James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, 
The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Lord, as we open your word today, hard words, words that, that maybe could bring confusion or guilt and shame or words that maybe we just want to pass over. We, we lean into these words today. We believe that this is your word and it's alive and active. And today you have some truth for us, truth that we need desperately in our lives so that we can be transformed by you to bring hope to others through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. This morning, I want to I begin with some context, right? Each and every week we talk about, as we're reading through the book of James, that who is James's audience? Well, it's believers. It's believers that are being persecuted. It's believers that are being scattered. But, but this six verses in James is different. And it's different for some very specific reasons. The reason that we know is because throughout the book of James, he makes it clear who he's addressing because he says constantly, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Or he just says, believers, believers in Christ ought to, believers, believers in Christ, right? So literally over a dozen times I counted just quickly through four chapters, James is constantly reminding, his, who, who am I talking to here? I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters. But in this six verses, those terms are noticeably absent, why? Because that's, that's not his audience anymore. We also know that because these six verses are harsh, and James speaks harsh words, but almost always in the first four chapters, he, he, he points towards repentance, but not here. These six verses, there's, there's no repentance here, no reference to repentance from God, only judgment and wrath from God. So why is this? He's speaking about actions and behaviors that are happening all around believers, all around the church. It's kind of like this technique, and, and James is a Jew, right? So he would be familiar with the Old Testament prophets. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see this idea of kind of giving specific attention to the surrounding pagan nations to denounce them. Often that would happen with the Old Testament prophets. And in some ways, James is kind of being a, a New Testament prophet with these six verses. We also believe here it's possible the actions described here are being done against believers, against believers. Perhaps they're the ones being mistreated and neglected. Perhaps they're the ones who have not been paid for the work that they did. Maybe they're experiencing injustice. And James is speaking in the midst of pain and disappointment, in the midst of trial. In essence, he's promising them justice will come. So why do I spend time establishing that? Why is that important? Because... We have said week after week, James is talking to believers who are poor, who have been exiled, who have very little. They don't have wealth. They don't have homes. And most of their earthly possessions have been taken from them. So, so these six verses seem a little bit out of place, don't they? Their temptation, though, may be in a time of struggle to aspire to the wealth and prestige that they see around them. They're experiencing hard times and circumstances, but the temptation might be to aspire to be like them, those out there with all of their stuff and all of their wealth. They might be tempted in their hardship to buy into the lie that their joy and their peace comes from the things around them. Not, not unlike the Jews who had escaped 
from slavery in Egypt, but said, we want to go back. I think James is thinking of them as he writes these words in James chapter 5. So, so James doesn't hold back, does he? These are words of warning and words of judgment. This is a wake-up call, and this is a specific call to guard against these types of behavior. So the clarifying question is, what's the problem? I think that's always important when we, when we dive into a passage like this because sometimes we misidentify what the problem is. So, so clearly, verse 4, there's a specific action and behavior he's addressing that these workers have not been paid for, for the, the work that they did. They've been cheated and wronged, and he likens this to condemning and murdering. These are strong accusations, but, but this is more than one specific incident. James is addressing the root of the issue. What is the problem? What is the problem that James begins chapter 5 with? The, the problem is greed. The problem is greed. Our desires driving us to want more and more. Greed that's fueled by selfishness. And look, look at the words that James uses. Look again at this passage. Look at the words that are used. Wail, misery, rotted, corroded, eat your flesh like fire. He's making the strongest point here, isn't he? But really, the answer to what's the problem, it, it, we can find it in one verse. If we look back on verse 5, I'll have it here on the screen. It really is in two parts. James summarizes, he gives some examples. I mean, he, he, he's given them the hard truth. But then he, he says this, this statement in verse 5, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And self-indulgence. This is the problem. A, a selfish desire for more and more and more, an appetite that is unquenchable. That's what James is saying. You've lived in, in this luxury, but this self-indulgence, this hunger for more and more and more that's never satisfied. He doesn't stop there. As he often does, he gives us a visual to help understand it. So the next part of verse 5 you see here, he shows us what this looks like, an image of what this looks like. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Ooh. I don't know what it would be like to be a pig and know that slaughter day's coming, but I think I'd want to slim down in those days. Like, hey, you eat up, buddy. I'm gonna right, right. But no, James is saying in the day of slaughter, you're just fattening yourselves up more and more and more. This is a powerful and thought-provoking image, isn't it? I realize that maybe in in the days in which we're living, fewer and fewer churches would want to talk about these kind of hard things. But, but we, we here at Church of Nazareth, we want God's whole truth, not just the parts that make us feel good. And so that's why we, we have to take seriously truth like we read here in James 5.5. 5. These words challenge greed that is often, often accepted or justified in our world today, isn't it? So, so, as we think of this, I think of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, because to, to read James is to read Jesus because they were brothers, right? And so James's life was transformed by the ministry of Jesus. And I think of Jesus's words in Luke chapter 12. He said it this way, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is Jesus, right? Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. That almost sounds like, this part looks like it could be in Proverbs, right? Like life does not consist in abundance of possession. Like if Yoda said that, you'd be like, wow, that's so wise. But this is Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, watch out, guard against greed, because your life 
Real life is not about this desire for more. Real life, the life that you desperately want, is not found in abundance of more and more and more. That's not the true joy that you're really seeking. And he goes on to tell a story about this statement. A story, a visual of a man who had wealth. He had an abundance of wealth, an abundant harvest. So what does he do with his wealth? What does he do with his success? Well, he builds bigger barns. He takes his surplus. That's the word Jesus actually uses, surplus. More than what he needs, right? He takes his surplus, and what does he do? He keeps it. He hoards it for himself. His motto is, take life easy, drink, and be merry. This is the picture of foolishness, Jesus says, because the man's life ends. And all he has done and all he has accumulated for himself is wasted. Jesus uses that one painful word to describe this man, foolish, foolish, to take the surplus that he has and and hoard it for himself. It's foolishness, Jesus says. This is the picture Jesus gives, and this is really the picture that James gives us in 5.5, fattening ourselves more and more when the day of slaughter is coming. I remember as a kid, I was always enthralled by the promise of more. I like toys, right? So I always thought more toys or more video games. There would be this moment. That, that's really what it was. I think I wanted the new video game system, but I, I just always envisioned this moment. Like when I opened it or as I would playing, how I would feel in that moment once I got whatever it was that I wanted. And the truth is I, I, I kind of outgrew toys. And so then it was freedom. That's what I thought it would be. I, I thought about more freedom. Once I got to middle school, then I would arrive. I had this picture in my mind of what middle school would be like, how it would feel. <laughs> Man, was that funny, right? Because right, right? Like, I got to middle school and I'm just telling you, that, I don't know what I was expecting to feel, but this isn't it, right? Because that wasn't it. So, so then it was the next thing. Maybe it was driving, right? Well, when I get to high school, when I get my license, Oh yeah, then I will arrive. And then it's going to feel like, I, again, I use that word because that's how, I, that's how I felt. That's what I thought about, this feeling that I would achieve once I got my own car. And, you know, driving was kind of cool. But I, I arrived at that point and I was looking around and I was like, is this it? Is this really it? Man, and it felt fine, but, but I, it wasn't all that I hoped it'd be. So college, right? Well, college, I'll be, I'll be on my own. I'll have some independence. I'll be living my life. Or after that, maybe, maybe when I fall in love, maybe when I get my career, maybe the family, maybe that first house. All of these things were awesome. But life seems to always dangle that next carrot in front of you, doesn't it? The next thing, that, that'll, when you get there, the lure of more, 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 when you get there, that's when you'll really feel like you're happy or you're successful or you've got peace, or you've got joy, the promise that you need more to bring you the joy and peace and purpose in your life. And so I'm recognizing in myself this pull of more. See, it's more than money, right? It's more than material wealth. It's also an issue of the heart, a heart that's driven by a pursuit of more, 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 a life desperate for the next thing to bring them joy is an empty life. I'm going to say that again, a life desperate for the next thing to bring you joy it's an empty life some of us have experienced that in this room so this is why James 
says that life, uh, why Jesus says life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, an abundance of the things that we accumulate, the things that we possess, even the things that we achieve. Jesus said it this way too, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but lose their soul? What good is it to gain all of that stuff? Whatever it is today that represents more in your life, the next promotion, the vacation home, the 401k, retirement, the college, you know, that you really want to get into, student, whatever it is that, that, man, Jesus says, what good is it if you get all of that, but you lose what's most important in your life? The Bible um, speaks a lot about money. That's, that's probably the tension in the room today, right? When we read James 5, James is going to talk about wealth. He's going to talk about money. He's going to say some really harsh things that are kind of uncomfortable. That we kind of have to pause and say, well, what does that mean for me today? And the truth is the Bible, the Bible talks a lot about money. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions about that. And actually, I know you do because this is a topic that often when it comes up, it's, it can be a little bit confusing, there's a lot of questions we have when we come to this topic. Maybe the question you would have is, why? Why does the Bible talk about money so much? Why does Jesus talk about money so much? Uh, maybe your question is this, is it wrong to have money? Is that what the Bible says, it's wrong to have money? Should I feel guilty? I have that question a lot, I've, personally. Should I feel guilty, God, because of what I have? Sometimes in the context of giving within the church, right? When we talk about that within the church, we have questions. Why do I give to the church? Why is that important? How much? How much? That's, how much do I have to give, God? Okay, how much? Just tell me. How much is it? Man, and these are, questions. These are good questions. They're good questions because they're real. And, and they represent maybe if you're, if you're seeking the Lord and you're wanting to be more transformed into his image and you're wrestling with this truth, I think these are good questions. But I want to suggest to you today that there's a best question. Not just a better question, but a best question. I think it's the best question when we look at James 5. And I think it's a best question compared to all of those other questions that we might have. The question that James is pointing us to and the question that Jesus is ultimately asking is this. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? This, this is the question. This is the question. Because this is the question that, that extends beyond your circumstances, doesn't it? it? It's beyond the challenges that you're facing right now. It's beyond your bank account, however good or bad you feel about that. It's beyond the stuff that you may have or not have yet the stuff you wish you had. This is the question. It's the question for the Jewish believers that were being persecuted for their faith and surrounded by wealth and greed. And it's the question for those of us that claim the name of Jesus today. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? We go back through all of the other questions that we might ask and we understand why this is the better question. Uh, why does the Bible talk so much about money? Well, because money is always connected to our hearts, isn't it? It's always connected to our hearts. For me, uh, money is like a barometer. <laughs> it's a barometer for what my heart values. You can tell the things I value by what I spend my money on. And I'm not even talking about you, I'm talking about me. That's always true in my life. And for some of us, some of us, money is the last thing. The last thing we hold on to, it can be an idol for us. It can be a, a God that we worship. We need it. We, we don't know where it's going to come from. How are we going to get what we need? for? And so maybe it's not even just this, 
desire to accumulate more, but a desire to have what we need to get by. And so money becomes kind of a God in our lives that we serve. So the Bible talks about money. Jesus specifically talks a lot about money because he desperately cares about this question. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? Is it wrong to have money? Should I feel guilty? Those are good questions, right? Questions, I, I, how can you not think that as you read James 5? I, I do. But no, that's not the message. That's not the message. You can have money, but your money can't have you. Ever. Do you see the difference? You can have money. You can have resources. You can have blessings in your life. Things that you can look around and be like, wow, I've... God's entrusted me. I've got a lot. But those things can't own me. I own them. I'm a steward of them for God's glory, but they're not going to own me because there's one God in my life and there's one person, one who has my heart, and it's not any of that stuff. It's him. Do you see why that's, that's the question? Money, possessions, wealth, that, that can't be your master because Jesus is Lord. Who has your heart? Why do I give? Maybe we ask that question. Good question, right? Why do we give? Why, does the, why do we give it to the church? What is that about? Well, biblically, biblically, if we look through the story of God, giving to God was a declaration of trust. It was a way throughout the story of God that the people of God trusted God by, by giving back, giving back to him. It was a constant reminder of what? That God, you are provider. You're provider. You have given me everything. So when I give, it's not this guilt thing. It's not out of even religious duty because we really value relationship more than religion. We're not into duty and obligation. We're into relationship. And so why do you give in a relationship? Because it's, it's trust and love. It's the question, who has your heart? That's why we give, because, God, you have my heart. The question, how much do I give? That's a good question. It's a good question. I get that question. I understand it. And we, as a church, we participate in this biblical principle called tithing. And maybe that seems outdated or old-fashioned to you, but it began way back in the Old Testament where Abraham literally gave a tithe, a tenth of his possessions, of his first fruit, of his money, of his, and he gave the best, not the last tenth, not the scraps, but the best that he had back to the Lord, his worship. And we see throughout, even the New Testament, Jesus spoke about the tithe. And it, it was this biblical, it is this biblical principle that God, I don't want to just give you my leftovers, I want to give you my, my first tenth. My first tenth. But, but sometimes people like to push back on that, and I understand. Well, isn't that kind of outdated, and isn't that, well, the problem is when we look at the New Testament, the New Testament concept of giving is I give God all. I mean, look at the book of Acts. These believers were giving everything they had. They literally brought everything they had and put it at the feet of the apostles and everything. Nobody had needs because everything was given to everyone. And so, so sometimes this question of how much do I give is really about us trying to draw these arbitrary lines about what belongs to me and what belongs to God. And I can, I can give them this, but this is mine and that's his. And that's why it's the wrong question. Because the question is, who has your heart? And the, the question of how much do I give, it's really good. And there's really good, important biblical truth. Biblical truth that we practice generosity often. We practice this idea of tithing. We practice uh, giving even beyond our tithes to our offerings and generosity. And today you are surrounded by people that love to be generous. We do. 
But we don't do any of that for our applause and look at us and, well, here I am. No, we do all of that because it celebrates and reminds and it pushes back against this idea that the stuff we have will make us happy. We lean into this question, who has your heart? And we answer, we answer with love and the passion in our hearts. God, you have my heart. So it's not a question of how much do I have to give. God, what do you want me to do? What, do you, what do I have that I can use to bless others? How can I worship you even with the stuff that I possess that I can't take with me? It's all gonna rot one day. It's all gonna burn. I say that when I get really frustrated about money. It's all gonna burn, right? But this question, who has your heart? Man, I almost missed some of the most incredible blessings in my life because I didn't trust God enough. Specifically with, with, with finances, with money. This is real for me. This is a challenge for me. It's embarrassing to admit at times, but it is. I, I try to share often that for me, seriously me, money is, is a place where I've struggled to trust God. I worry about it. I know I shouldn't. I know what the Bible says about it, but I worry about it. I do. It's a, it, it can be a God in my life sometimes. In, in, a, in a way that, that the enemy can cause me to not trust in God. I can get frustrated or discouraged. How about you? Can you relate to that in your life? Can you relate to that struggle, that tension? I can. When we began our adoption process, and I say that because it was a long journey, and we went through three different processes, and two of them just very disrupted and full of heartache and brokenness. But you know my biggest concern, a uh, little bit of story there, Lauren, uh, who is now my wife, but we were in college together, and we both just sensed that God was calling us to adopt. And we didn't know if we'd have our own biological children. We didn't know what it was all about. And so we got to this point in our lives where we were kind of like, okay, I think it's time. And you want to know the biggest hang up for me? And look, I, I can tell you now more than ever, there's, there's challenges and, and there's challenges in your home and there's challenges. How's this going to change our family? And how, how are we going to have the emotional support? To, none of that was my biggest fear. You know, the biggest fear for me in adopting was money. I'm almost ashamed to admit it. As I say that, I'm like, how could that be true? How could that be true of my life? That that was the thing. Of all the things, that was the thing. But I'm here to admit that, that that's true in my life. I had to step out in faith and be willing to trust that God would provide the finances to make it happen. But I can say today how thankful I am that I, I did step out. That we, our family, did step out and trust God. It was a journey, and look, our adoption journey was filled with challenges and pain and heartache, and there's still pain along the journey, right? But ultimately, it brought me my daughter. It brought me my daughter. I cannot imagine life without her. Imagine if I allowed something so silly as stuff, as finances, to keep me from trusting God enough to bring me my precious little girl. Why do I tell you that story? Because I, that question, who has your heart, is about way more than we think it is. We have this kind of limited view of our life, and we have this limited view of the decisions that we're making. And I just, I just don't know today what stands on the other side of your obedience to God. I don't know what blessings there are. And we don't give to get from God. That's not the theology that we preach here. But I'm just here to say, if you will trust God with your heart... He has good things for you, good things, blessings, 
a story, a future. We talked about the future last week, right? A, a good future for you that you can trust him with. That's why that question matters so much. I believe today that if you'll trust God with your whole life, he has good things and good plans. He wants to show you things you could never imagine. But you got to trust him. You can't hold anything back. We can't take our life and say, well, God, this is what's mine, and you can have that. No, no, no. The question, James 5 is desperately pleading with believers to answer is, who has your heart? Who has your heart when it's hard? Who has your heart when it's good? Who has your heart when you've got nothing? Who has your heart when you've got more than you need? Who has your heart? God, today I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray uh, as we listen and hear words like this, what we're thinking about matters. And so today I just pray against any guilt or shame. I don't believe that's of you today. I don't believe that this message is a message of condemnation. I don't believe that we should leave our heads, you know, frustrated and discouraged. Instead, Lord, I I believe you want to offer hope to us. And maybe for some, that, that simple question, who has your heart? Maybe today we would have the courage to respond in obedience. And in that that one step, it's a first step, but that step of obedience, God, you want to transform the rest of our lives. Lives that we're not living for us anymore, not lives that we're not living where we're God or or the things around us are the gods of our lives. But no, no, where we say, God, you have my heart. So now we spend a few moments reflecting, being quiet, being still in your presence. And we say, God, you, you can have, you can have my heart. Thank you so much for listening today. Go ahead and subscribe to our channel for updates and new episodes. And if you have any questions about our church or ministries, go ahead and email us at info at cotnaz.org.